0: Welcome to the Love Examined playlist. We're solving love one song at a time. Welcome back, everyone, to the Love Examined playlist podcast. Uh, Avram, welcome back.
1: I'll start by saying I'm sorry for being late. Given, <laughs> given the theme of today's uh, today's song,
0: may as well start out with an apology. See what that goes like. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so welcome back, everyone. Using songs from our playlist as a jumping off point to explore ideas and really just for Avram and I to about ideas around love, dating, marriage, divorce, relationships, whatever it is that comes up. Um, so today we are going to do a song by Feist, a Canadian artist, um, probably best known for her work on Sesame Street. <laughs> um
1: which is well, one of really my the favorite the, clips the apple commercial was it the apple commercial
0: first yeah apple commercial also um but i remember because my kids are little when this happened when she was on sesame street singing her one two three four song and it was like you know one of the most wonderful things i had seen in a long time um so we're looking at a song by her called so sorry um which is a beautiful song um but it kind of you know, cuts into territory that we haven't necessarily had a chance to really dig into yet, um, all around apologies, you know, which weirdly enough is a very controversial thing these days. Um, in fact, just as a precursor, I remember um, reading an article in the last few years that talked about how in American society, like people are trained to not say they're sorry because they live in a litiginous country. So if you say sorry, you're admitting culpability and then you could get sued. So if you get in a car accident, they're like the last thing you should ever say is you're sorry, which is so interesting, you know? And what kind of a culture does that build? So I'm super curious Avram, what did you think of the song and um, why should this be on our playlist? Well, I mean, uh, Thinking about
1: controversial uh, ideas around apologies, one of the things that makes me uh, uncomfortable isn't strong enough of a word. The whole, this whole sort of holding people hostage to an idea or an opinion, holding their salaries hostage, threatening to dox them online, until they give a, a, an apology and what's the line, I will do better. I could, there's these, these lines that you could tell it's written by some sort of communications PR professional right. because it's, it's this line of um, I need to do better. And, uh, and it's, it's all nonsense. Uh, I would say 96% of it is nonsense. It's the idea that I'm going to offer up an apology for a quid pro quo. I, I will apologize for something I really believe right? For something I actually said and believe, but mm-hmm. I will apologize for it. And in exchange, you will leave me alone. And it's completely devalued the idea of an apo- a heartfelt apology. So right. just starting at that level, we are living through a time where we teach our kids, for example, if you do something, you take responsibility for it, you apologize for the, you know, owning up to your wrongdoing. And there's some sort of healing that takes place. And what's happening now is almost the opposite of that because mm-hmm. these weird encounters that people are getting into, I think that what, at least what I've observed Ellie, or I know people who've been on the receiving end of, of these type of things. Everybody just feels miserable after that. No one believes it. It's completely inauthentic. And right. so, so apologies um, and empathy are being used in a way to bully people. It's it's almost the very opposite of what we tr- try to train kids to do in high schools and elementary schools, which is, you know, um, these anti-bullying campaigns where we're misappropriating in a very malicious sort of a way mm-hmm. to use empathy and compassion and apology to bully people into getting in line. It's um, – right. I'm not sure what else to say about it, except for the fact that I really hope it's on its way out. I do think it is, by the way. I I do think, I think it is on its way out because I think everybody can smell the BS around this. I think people are getting tired of apologizing for, oh, I don't know, scientific papers that they've done research on. Right, and And I,
0: I think it also just smacks of any type of coerced profession of sorry also feels like a coerced profession of I love you right it feels gross it feels like ooh like that's not really what we were aiming for we were trying to get you to to you know the idea is the apology is supposed to bring you to a sense of um looking at what you did and knowing you could have done better and why right like it's supposed to reorient your thinking not just like um, be some superficial guilt offering that you sacrifice yourself on the altar of in order to, like, as you said, be able to still play a show at Madison Square Gardens.
1: That's right, yeah. And by the way, just to be clear, uh, the main focus of what I wanted to speak about is not this issue, by the way. I just thought I would throw that out there. You mentioned controversy, so it, it reminded me of that. Right. Um, my, you know, one of the things that, I deal with in in my work are couples who come to me and they're gridlocked we talked about gridlock last time mm-hmm. so these are couples who come to me after maybe being married for 15 20 years and they can't move to the left and they can't move to the right they can't go forward and they can't go back and they are at the precipice of thinking should we stay together or should we split and so right. they're stuck in this in this position and <clears throat> it, it's um, and at this point in time, the technology of apology has been worn out to where it's a shell of itself, and it just doesn't work anymore. So that's actually what I wanted to, f- to focus on is the nature of an apology, the uh, sort of the DNA of an apology, mm-hmm. when does it work? When does it stop working? And is there a different way of thinking about human behavior that goes beyond? A, a deeper um, healing process that goes beyond apologies. I think there is, mm-hmm. but let's unpack it. So how, how about we just jump in to the lyric itself?
0: Let's do it. Okay, which okay. one did you pick out?
1: So the one I picked, um, so the, the one I picked is the obvious one. I mean, the fight starts right in the beginning of saying, I'm sorry, two words, I always think after you've gone, and the line here is when I realize I was acting all wrong, so selfish. And so my first thought about this is that in a world of binaries, right? Uh, light, dark, victim, uh, aggressor, or evil person in those type of worlds, very simple, clear cut. I think that what Feist is getting at here could work. I mean, it genuinely can work in a very simple binary world. Um
0: Meaning, you know, like you know, getting in a fight, saying something awful, apologizing, moving on.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, um, uh, I, I, uh, you know, <laughs> this is ridiculous. I, I'm walking in the kitchen. Um, I'm very angry. I'm walking too fast. I bump into my wife, knock her over. The milk goes all over the place. She screams at me, and I say, "I, I am sorry." I. You know, I I shouldn't have been walking that fast. And she realizes that it that it wasn't malicious. And she says, I accept your apology. And then, you know, an hour later, we're laughing about the whole absurdity of the thing. Okay, She understands what's happening for me. I understand her position. And we grow beyond uh, beyond that. But I don't think that's what Feist is getting at here. Meaning that she talks about a relationship and and relationships are much more um, reciprocal. They're reciprocal. And and what I mean by that is two people are co-creating a scenario where a lot of feelings are getting hurt and maybe a lot of bad things have been said to each other. Mm -hmm. And it gets a lot more murky to find out who's wrong here. Again, we're talking about this idea of right wrong, you know, in a court of law. You know who's right who has to apologize who has to accept the apology so however what one final thought Nellie, maybe a, i'm curious to hear if you have a different line or if you want to keep riffing on this line
0: mm-hmm.
1: feist is offering up a counter example by the way of um uh, of the apology where there's you know there's two ways to understand this in a binary way either i'm wrong or you're wrong Right in, in this example, this requires a certain amount of emotional maturity to sit there and go, look, I'm wrong. I, I'm a selfish jerk. This is what she's saying. I'm selfish. Um, I think she even I forget what the other lines are. she it, it, it sort of touches on maybe a deeper thing in, in, the, in the songwriter's past. But essentially she's saying I take full ownership ownership of this and I I am wrong. Now look, is, is it possible in a relationship that that's what's going on here right? I am a bad person or I have done something bad. And that is the catalyst for this thing. And if I apologize for it and i up to it, we are going to grow beyond this thing. Theoretically, it's possible. I got to say, I don't see that with the couples that I work with. However, if we're talking about as good as it's going to get in terms of saying, I'm sorry, this is about as good as it's going to get, right? An individual owns yeah, their part I, of the thing.
0: But so. I also think, look, in certain moments, one person can be in a, in a more emotionally mature place, and another person can be in a less emotionally mature place. And the person in the less emotionally mature place can do something inappropriate, in which case, what do you do? right? If you're going to take responsibility for that, it would seem that an apology would be a good place to start. Or is it? I don't know. I'm wondering now what you're going to say. So here's the thing.
1: <clears throat> like I said, um, when couples call me, not, not always, at least some people do call me in a preventative way, but the, generally when I get a, a referral for a couple, right, they have exhausted different options and they are at their wit's end. Okay, right. Likely in these cases, the words, I'm sorry, have been said 55 times on both parts and it's lost all its currency. Mm-hmm. So, right from the get go the feist example is done finished gone the, in both cases both partners don't believe it anymore because they see the, the repetition right the pattern behavior keeps happening or getting worse right. right so if i you know if i punch you and i say i'm sorry you're like oh, you mean it no i'm, I'm really sorry i sometimes get a, and i punch you again right and you're like what the hell is that no i'm really sorry this time i mean i'm really you know
0: which by the way like is not the jewish definition of an apology
1: Let's go there. So, so what is?
0: Like the Jewish definition of an apology we get from Yom Kippur, where there's a very clear formula for what an actual apology is, right? So let's, let's drag apart for a moment the idea of an apology in the words, I'm sorry. Okay. Because I'm sorry is only one piece of an apology. It's supposed to be acknowledging what you did, right? expressing remorse about it, saying, I'd never want to do that again, and then following that through with action, right? And all of those things sort of made up together encompass an apology from a Jewish standpoint. Um, Just saying the one piece of I'm sorry is missing all of the other piece, like all of the other parts to what actually makes up an entire apology. So that's where like I would say, I'm sorry if you think that's the only piece of the puzzle. It's like you're you're missing three quarters of the pie.
1: Now, you, like me, we've been through I don't know how many umkippers kippers I've been through in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that um, I think some of the technology has worked for me. I think some of it hasn't. Um, I've, I've given it the old college try. Uh, I think that there's an added piece. I don't think, I, again, I, I'm talking, we're, we're moving God out of the equation here. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're taking of the esoteric stuff. I'm talking about pure mm-hmm. practical, as we say, I think is Yiddish Tachlis, like very practical.
0: Yeah, which is tachlis. actually part of Yom Kippur also, right? Like there's the things that you talk to God about, like in terms of your relationship there. But we're very clear on Yom Kippur, the things that you have done with other people, you apologize right. to the person. You're not talking to God about that. Like That's your responsibility to fix that relationship like in the here and now with the actual person. So, so I agree I, with you. I think this applies to what you're going to say.
1: But I still think that even in the Yom Kippur example, when I read the literature and I'm in synagogue, there is, again, this idea of, of wronged and right or, or um, uh, victim. Uh, and it could be self. It could be you know how, how we have turned our back on ourselves right and harmed ourselves uh, mm-hmm. in, in many cases. And so it is a very binary way of thinking. Now, again, the technology itself, the process itself is one of the most comprehensive ways of, of managing um, wronged and rights. And I think it works very well. But I, I'd like to provide mm-hmm. an expansive way of, of that might be able to be uh, an addendum or a different way of thinking about this that moves beyond the idea of saying, I'm sorry, again, coming back to Feist's lyrics. Um, and, uh, and I'm just throwing this out as an idea. I'm curious to see um, mm-hmm. where this will go. Although I have to say I am biased in this because I've seen it work in my own life. So I think, I think it's actually quite <laughs> powerful. But to do that, I want to start with a quote. This is from Dr. Michael Kerr. He's semi-retired author and psychiatrist in uh, in the States. And it goes like this. If human beings are linked together emotionally across the generations by a process that is fueled by automatic reactions and reinforced by subjectivity, who does one blame? Let me, let me just stop there for one second. Yep. So what he's saying is, if you and me, Ellie, are just the the um the end result of decisions that have been made previous to us by our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents in an automatic way this is important a lot of it this is in an automatic way that passes through the generations
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right Right. and that's reinforced by subjectivity so i mean it's not objective it's the feelings of this the feelings of that so you got all this automatic stuff and subjectivity who does one blame? So one of the jokes, in my uh, amongst my colleagues, is that if you're going to blame someone, eh, pick a great, 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 great grandfather. Are you going to pick anybody, right? Pick them, you know. So when people come to my office and go, "It was my mom," "It was my mom," or you know, "It was my dad leaving us," or um, "It was the prime minister," whatever, you know, people look for, you know, their you're gonna when you start thinking in that very binary sort of um, that clear cut way that there are innocent people, there are angels and devils and family, right? And it's important to get the devils to change to see the wrong ways. Okay, this is where I'm sorry could actually work quite well if you believe the world works that way. Dr. Kerr is offering up a very different um, explanation that we all are just a, we're. we're um, A a combination of all of these forces that go back a long, long way. And he continues getting beyond blame does not mean exonerating people from the part they play. So this would come back to the Om Kippur idea. Right. Getting beyond blame does not mean exonerating people from the part they play or played in the creation of a problem. However, it does mean seeing the total picture, acquiring a balanced view, not feeling compelled to either approve or disapprove of the nature of one's own and other people's families. So Mm. here's the thing. Here's the thing. If it's true that I have a way of automatically reacting in certain situations with bosses, with my spouse, with my kids, and if it's true, and I do believe this is true, by the way, Ellie, that we Mm -hmm. have willpower. Yep. But I also believe, I also believe, okay, as an old Freudian, you know that there are automatic forces within me unconscious forces that are very very powerful right that come out in my dreams that come out when i get angry that come out when i get sad these automatic ways of of reacting The wrestling that I have to do is with myself and to expand the notion of who I am beyond me and understand in a very deep and comprehensive way of my history to understand some of this reactivity. And and what is so bloody powerful about doing that in a therapeutic context is when I hear my spouse do the same thing, if they're able to, okay, do it as well. I sort of see all of these forces that have landed in this whatever behavior that I feel is so problematic. Uh, Now, I'm going to just very quickly get to the the payoff here, and then we can, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll open this up. When this is done well, I have found that couples no longer feel the need to use the word I'm sorry in those situations. What I see in my office at times, you'll see one spouse going into their family history and describing all of the movements and changes and reactivity and how people got stuck. And the other spouse starts listening and nodding their head. And it, you could see it almost how they nod their head with a certain amount, it's more than compassion though. It's an understanding of the gestalt of the whole thing of who this person is, and it moves it beyond the individual and it places it in the whole sort of soup of this multi-generational process. And I find that when those session when they end those sessions, the silence itself, the silence suggests. We have grown beyond the need to apologize for anything. This is important. It doesn't remove what we talked about before in, in, in the Yom Kipper example, the individual decision to be better. It doesn't remove that at all because the, mm-hmm. the truth of the matter is I have one life to live. How do I want to conduct myself in this life? Do I want to pass on to my kids a certain amount of emotional regression or do I want to pass on maturity? So we, we actually have to make a decision to do that. But when this is done well with this framework, it moves beyond the need for an apology to get beyond something. There is no need to apologize. Some people can do it. You don't have to do it. The understanding itself allows people to have choices of what they're going to do and not going to, without being hung up on this idea of how authentic was that apology?
0: Right. That's where I think things get tricky because people have unfinished business around apologies. Right. So I think that once you're into that territory where there's such a charge, right, you have to say sorry to me. Right. Or I have to say sorry to you. But when I do, you have to accept my apology. Right. Like once you're into that unfinished business, then apology is not actually what's going to be the remedy for this particular illness. But I do think it's interesting if you're capable, like you said, of moving from taking responsibility, like clearly knowing what parts of this were automatic for me, what parts of this are default nature nurture through generations where that, you know, my anxiety is driving the bus. But what small part of that was a place where I could have made a different choice? And I didn't. And why, you know, is for me to figure out whether it's because I'm angry at you actually for something or whether it's because, you know, I just was exhausted in the moment, whatever it was. But but I do think that, a, that an apology can be a taking responsibility when it's not mixed in with this idea that if I don't apologize to you, I'm a bad person, right? Or if you don't accept my apology, you're a bad person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I feel like there's a doorway there because what does, um, what's the acknowledgement of an error without an apology of some sort.
1: There's a part two. And I think it addresses what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. And this is really important. So part one is this idea that whatever is happening Again, our, our podcast is called. Um, oh my God,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's how tired the Love we Examined
1: are. podcast, the Love Examined <laughs> podcast. Um, uh, yeah, for those for those, uh, for those who are listening. Ellie knows this. I have a kid home with COVID and odds, uh, so all my family's home, and we've been dealing with a lockdown here, and uh, I'm at my wits' end. Okay, um, so the Love Examined. So we we you and I are talking about dating, marriage. So I, I really would like to keep this within the realm of how couples get gridlocked right. and use apologies as a way of getting out of the gridlock. Okay, mm-hmm. so. The first part to understand is that whatever happens between two people is a combination of very complex forces that go back generations and generations and generations. Okay, Now, some people get that, some people don't. I'm just letting people know if they want to think differently about this, there's a way to understand this that is bigger than just your partner. But there's a part two, and part two is really important. Ellie, we've talked about this before. And that's the idea of reciprocity, Mm. that, okay, a cause and effect approach is what works well, I'm sorry. I do something to you, right? You're innocent in this. Again, I punch you and you're like, what the hell was that, right. right? You're completely innocent in a situation like that. And I say, I am sorry, very effective. I take ownership and maybe I go for anger management courses, blah, 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 blah. I never punch you again. Everything is great. But family systems theory and, and uh, the work by David Starch and Esther Perel, they say something different. It's a little insidious. It's counterintuitive, but it's powerful. And if you don't understand it, you're going to be in trouble, especially in in, uh, an emotionally committed relationship. This is the idea that that is not what's happening in most relationships. What is happening is reciprocity. Two people who are hurt about certain things both feel aggrieved, both feel wronged and are doing things to each other in insidious ways little pinches little shots little ways of saying i'm i either feel hopeless or i'm really angry and i'm going to get back at you david snarch has a word for this it's a, every time i say it to a couple they know what i'm talking about because they smirk every couple i always say you know there's this term called normal marital sadism and right. every couple smirks when i say this because right. they know what they've done okay and david will call couples out on this you know this is the idea where you know, a partner will go, I didn't know it would hurt them. I didn't know if I only knew mm-hmm. And David would, the late David Starch would say, you're full of, you know, right. he would call people out on this all the time. Right. So it works like this, Ellie, it works like this.
0: So, so meaning yeah. just to say on am with us. you're <clears throat> saying most of the time people know that there's some responsibility on their part for the dynamic that's going on. And whether you're the recipient of inappropriate behavior or the, you know, giver of inappropriate behavior, there's some kind of thing going on between the two of you that allows for inappropriate behavior to happen. No,
1: I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's more insidious than that. People don't even know that it's happening. Uh, People, when they, when a lot of times when my clients will say um, that Let me rephrase this. Some do, some don't. You know, again, Ellie, so much of this stuff is a continuum, right? People who are higher end of the continuum, people who are a little bit more self-aware and emotionally mature, they kind of know what's going on. People who are on the far end of the extreme, they Mm -hmm. will look at me and say, they deserved it. So like, they, they, There are people who are completely oblivious they think they're, they're, they're teaching their spouse a lesson. Right. Right. So I, I think it's important to understand that, that, um, the same action in different couples is sort of perceived differently. What I'm saying is that whatever the action is, the, the malfeasance, right. Is mm-hmm. reciprocal. It's two people co-creating something because they feel backed into a corner without any other option. than I'm in pain and I'm going to make you suffer with me. Okay, so a, a, a small example. A small example would be, you know, I, it's a stupid example, Ellie, but it's a small example. You know, um, a husband is going uh, grocery shopping, right? so I said, go, go, go. Oh, please don't forget to pick up the low-fat yogurt that I love, um, the the one percent. There's only like, um, you know, there's a few left. Please, 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 please don't mm-hmm. forget, right? And he leaves and he gets into his thing he gets everything on the list comes home and she's like where's my oh would you believe it i completely forgot to uh what do you mean i I was uh, i i just i I didn't i didn't remember Mm -hmm. okay so normal marital sadism the little ways we go oh it's we call it a pinch and a smile i i totally forgot i didn't mean it i'm Mm -hmm. sorry I'll do better next time, or whatever the case may be. Now, there's a lot worse examples than that, right. right? But the idea is that that interchange of "I'm getting back at you for something you did an hour before," mm-hmm. and all of this funnels down to some, usually some existential um, problem of... Uh, oh, it could be anything, Ellie. It could be um, a conversation with having another child that didn't go well and they feel gridlocked on that issue. It could be an example of one person gets tired of um, propping up their partner in a certain way and they don't do it anymore. And the other partner is completely lost at sea. They don't what to do with that. So now they're right. fighting like mad to bring things back to a homeostasis state of the way things But then were. are
0: you saying that every time he forgets the yogurt, that's some type of like... Um lashing out? Or are there actually moments where he just forgets the yogurt?
1: No, no, I mean, you know, I mean, even Freud said, right, a cigar is sometimes just a cigar. And sometimes right. in a dream, it's a penis, like, oh, who no, who knows what it means. But that's why it's always important, you know, young therapists, when they're first starting out, it's it's always important when, when you just started doing therapy, um, it is to stop assuming you know what's going on with these people always ask questions always ask keep asking questions when you right. when you went to get to the grocery store do you do you tend to forget oh yeah like i i ever since i was a teenager i'm a basket case with those things and you know i keep saying i'm going to do a to-do list and, yeah, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar like this right. is just you know so it's always important but, but you know, Ellie. Again, I, I find that the insidious nature of reciprocity in a, in, in a long-term committed relationship is something you always have to explore when people are gridlocked and people can get nasty. When I say nasty, mm-hmm. what I tell people is, it's only the people that we love the most that we hurt the most. It's not strangers. It's not strangers. It's siblings to siblings. It's parent to child. It's spouse to spouse. It is not strangers. And it's the reason why is because these people are very important to us. We need them to see us in a certain way. We need a certain amount of validation. And when it stops coming, we become like wild ravaged animals. Mm. It just, I, I see it in marriage. And so this is really important because if if, if two things are going on here, one, a multi-generational process of where when you react, you're just reacting on sort of some, some automatic impulses combined with this idea of reciprocity, which is it's actually not one person doing something bad to an innocent person. It's two people who feel aggrieved at the same time. In right. Feist's example, it's very simple. I'm selfish. I did something mean to you. I'm sorry. Great. That can work great. I'm calling shenanigans on this because most couples that I work, well, by most, I say almost all, okay, mm-hmm. are way past the point of, I did something. I didn't realize it would hurt you. I'm sorry. The other person feels feels um, heard for the hurt they've incurred. And the, and the person who harmed the person, it, the guilt is removed. The remorse is removed by saying, I apologize. There's mm-hmm. growth in the behavior and they move on. I am not saying that's not possible. I'm saying that right. makes up one, 2% of what I see in my, pra- what I see in my practice is a reciprocal process of two people who are gridlocked, who are basically taking shots across the bow at each other because mm. of how much pain they're in. And Ellie, they will right. say it. You're, you're upset about that. Right. What about me? This is what you hear. This is, right. What right. I hear this is the kitchen the
0: sink type of argument where it doesn't matter what you say, like someone's going to throw back something at you that you did. And then there's, and then it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it'll sound like, you know, um, you know, it's true. It's true. We haven't had sex in six months. But where were you when the kids were young? And, and, then, and then, if you let them go, by the way, and I have to right. stop it because that could be a whole fifty-minute session, they'll just keep going back, right? right. Do you remember, Ellie? I'm telling this. This with some couples, it goes all the way back to courtship. Do you remember when we were dating in 1973? Right. And we went to see the movie. And <laughs> I'll sit there and go, guys, how far back do you want to go with this? Right. people
0: hold on to this. <laughs> Apparently stuff, right? to their great-grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> or, or great-great-grandparents.
1: So, so um, <clears throat> the idea is, if, if this is why I always say the best gift that you can give to any young couple is to have a comprehensive um, uh, understanding of the natural arc of relationships. Because mm. if you understand what's happening, when it happens, it still hurts. It doesn't take away the pain. Right. But at least you understand the process of what's happening. And then you can do what you're suggesting, which is... I see what's happening here. This is a very complicated. The only thing I can do, though, is take care of my part of the dance. Harriet right. Lerner's idea of the dance. I could learn how to do a new dance. And you are doomed if the idea is now you have to do it, too. As soon as right. as soon as couples go, <laughs> right. OK, OK, I get it. I'm
0: <clears throat> sorry, but you have to get better.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, i
0: I am offering up
1: an apology right now to do better. And then they get quiet and they're like, come on, what, what, what do you, what do you got for me? Right.
0: Right. It's you like know, giving got- a gift and waiting for yours in return. <clears throat> right, right. Right. You know, well, it's and the if same it's thing- not good enough, look out.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, it's the same thing with a quid pro quo with reciprocity with um, parents of um, young adults. They pay for their university. Right. <clears throat> and the idea is that, and, and, you know, I'm going to have a payoff for this, right? Because you're going go to medical school. And you'll take care of me in my older age. Like there's going to be a payoff for this. Right, right? now, sometimes it works for, for young adults who have no backbone, but sometimes it backfires in a, in a fabulous way that helps the family grow beyond these sort of quid pro quo um, arrangements. Anyways, mm-hmm. I think this is so bloody important to understand because the couples in my office have exhausted, I'm sorry. And then they feel hopeless. And this is the problem in our society when you feel hopeless, because... Because if you think the only tool in your arsenal is, I'm sorry, that's a really scary place to be because you think I've said it 25 times and we're in a worse place than ever.
0: Now we have no tools.
1: Now we we have no way of thinking about this anymore. Right. So I I think this is such an important. uh,
0: So where do you go from there? Like, is that then going back? Like, what do you do with all that water under the bridge? Like, how do you get out of a place where you are? So drowning in how much water is under that bridge of the relationship that you like can't imagine sorry actually meaning anything again. You know, take the
1: metaphor right take the thing you say water under a bridge right. If you don't understand water under a bridge, or how water works, or how rafts work, or how something floats, or or anything, if you don't know how to swim, what do people do when they don't know how to swim? They flail their arms. They use all their energy up, right? Right. You know, it's all. I I, sometimes I find it interesting watching YouTube videos on wake. Is it not wakes? What's that called when the ocean comes in and? and it pulls people out to the sea. They don't uh, understand like what's undertow? Happening. Undertows. Uh, thank you, right. undertows. I was caught in an undertow when I was a kid in Florida. And, mm. you know, you're playing and all of a sudden you look, the beach is, <laughs> it's like, hey, my parents are pretty far. And you're like, whoa, my parents are really far. And I didn't right. understand what an undertow is. And what you do is you panic mm. because the, the shore is getting further and further. And no one explained to me that if you try to go head on straight back to the shore, the the waves will pull, the, the, under. The will pull you back further right you're supposed to go along the side and break out of the undertow and then you know, it's so important to understand the nature of the problem you're in or else you're going to mm. fight against it and of course god forbid like i mean you know if you're in the ocean you know people drown this way they don't right. understand what's happening and then you use all your energy
0: so meaning this- if you recognize that what you're dealing with is actually tons of water under the bridge <clears throat> You know, that all of this is actually not just, you're not just arguing about who put away the frying pan. You're arguing about all of the things that are not resolved between you and with yourselves. And now at least you can, if you have a good diagnosis, you can find a good solution to the problem. You know, um, first, absolutely, yes. But
1: it doesn't, it doesn't take away the pain. You see, if one partner says to another partner, I want to have another child. Okay, and you're thinking, I, I don't want to have another child child right now, mm. right? And so then your partner hears that, right? And they can't even envision a life without another child. And you can envision life with a child. And that goes on for, let's say, two, three years. And it can get really nasty at this point. Why are you doing this to me? Right. Okay. Why are you so mean to me? This is my dream. it gets really, really bad. Understanding the process of your own reactivity doesn't take away the pain. This is important. So, what do okay? you do with the pain? Okay. So, th- when you understand this, you have a deep understanding of what's happening here. You at least have a shot to deal with the undertow. What do I mean by that? You at least have a shot to pull yourself out of the undertow and go, okay. My partner isn't doing this to me because they're mean. They're not doing this to me because they're malicious. They're not doing this to me because I picked the wrong partner because God hates me. It is part of the natural evolution of relationships that at some point we are going to fundamentally disagree on certain things. How do I deal with my part of the reactivity in that dynamic. Ellie, this is such a fundamental difference from the other way, which is how do I change my partner to see my perspective? How, right. do, so how do I force like, my partner? Yeah.
0: Right. So let's assume most people aren't mean and malicious because the moment you realize actually this person is mean and is malicious and you can you know objectively prove that, then there's no reason to be with that person. That's like a totally different situation that you're in. Well, but, but, if- but even
1: situations like that, though, Ellie, I mean, are almost fictitious because, and I don't want to get too, I mean, yeah, yes, there is outliers, but suffice it to say, if you've been with someone for 12 years, you've already, um, uh, 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 um, you've already picked your partner and the ones who you right. met on the first date but or two. but I'm saying
0: this for people, right, who have just started dating, and you realize, actually, this person isn't a nice person. It's not just like... Like that they actually have issues.
1: Yeah, no, you're on a you're on a third date. In they that talk case, about it's their, like maybe not. Right. They talk about their father and they talk about him in a certain way where you're like, oh my God, I, I it's not the way I tend to think about my parents or family or or whatever. And you're thinking maybe, maybe this won't work. Yeah, you you can sort of suss right. that stuff out within the first way. No, but right. the people who are who 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 are mean spirited toward towards each other 12, 13 years in and gridlocked, okay, right. that the viciousness that's coming out. The viciousness that's coming out is that feeling of hopelessness and a doubling down on, I have to make my partner change to change, to calm me down. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can. And if I can't, I'm just going to make them suffer because why would they be doing this to me? And there's nowhere to go with that, by the way, except down, right? There's nowhere to go. So
0: how do you approach like one, you know, I, I certainly see with different clients that I have that are going through painful experiences you know, here's how we navigate pain. How how would you navigate pain then if somebody's because you're saying it doesn't take away the pain? So how do you deal with the pain?
1: We have a brief podcast, so I don't know how <laughs> how far. But it, look, standing on one foot here. Um, my late supervisor, David Freeman, used to always say, when a couple comes into your office, they are focused on each other, that, that they're so focused on each other, your one task, and it's the only task of that first session. He said, it has to happen in the first session. You have to find a way to get the couple to move their focus off each other and towards themselves. And right. so, so what I'm different... saying is,
0: what do they do when they move the so, focus towards themselves?
1: So the... the Generally, depending on again, I, you know, you have to be nimble and creative with this. I try to introduce a family diagram on session one or session two, because as soon as people even just visually they're looking at the diagram and not their partner's eyes or looking into the, you know, lower some of that reactivity, John Gottman, uh, sex therapist researcher. He has the idea of monitoring your heart rate and whenever you're talking about something and your heart rate goes above a certain amount, go for a walk around the block, lower your, your biofeedback because at a certain rate, <clears throat> he calls it emotional flooding. And if you can't get your, your, your biology down to a level of curiosity and um, playfulness, then you're going to be in a fight flight situation. So, right. again, I'm agnostic on the tool. The important thing here is you got to get the focus off of your partner. It, it, David Snarch says, You got to get your partner out of your head out of your head. It's almost like a, a, an exorcism, right. because when people are gridlocked, they're trying to like, what is my partner thinking? And they're so sensitive to eyebrow raises and words. And the, you got it. That's the first task. If you're as a therapist, if I'm unsuccessful at doing that, and there's too much um, uh, friction in, in the first session where, you know, Ellie, it could be a simple as um, who would like to begin And a fight breaks out. <laughs> it happens, right? right? right. The, the next tool that I have is I think it's best if I see you both individually. Right. I'll see you both individually, and then we will regroup as a couple, maybe on session five or six, just to lower the heat,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So you have to have a certain of humility about this kind of stuff. The more water under the bridge, the more gridlocked people are, the more you have to be nimble and creative with how you, you work with people. And the goal, the goal is to place the focus back on yourself and your family of origin to understand your part and how you got gridlocked. And once people can do that, Ellie, solutions just start uh, appearing. And often there's tears um, there. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things, but all right. of a sudden you can you can see the way um, someone's face changes from anger, how people's like jaws are tense to a little bit more um uh, just being relaxed w- with what's happening. Um, a little bit of humor kicks back in a couples will say to me, we haven't, we haven't giggled or laughed about this in 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, just the absurdity of the whole thing. Right. Look, there's a lot of places we can go with this, but again, the, the overall point is, um, there is nowhere to go in a cause and effect situation when the situation is not cause and effect. So if you see situations in your relationships with your siblings, your parents, and you see it in a cause and effect way, I say good luck to you. Maybe you'll convince someone they're the bad guy. Meaning, Maybe you will.
0: Meaning seeing it like you're wrong, I'm right. That's the end of the story. I have nothing to do with this. Right.
1: You have everything to do with this. You need to apologize. Mm-hmm. And then we can move beyond this. I've never seen it work.
0: Unless and it's so rarely true.
1: And that's the thing. Sometimes it is true, but I'm saying it's very rare. And that's why when I read the Feist song and the lyrics in the Feist song, I think people do see things in a very binary way, right? That someone does something bad, someone, and you just got to own up to it. There's bad guys, there's good guys.
0: And then that's how the world works. Exactly.
1: I think a systems perspective is, is very, very different. It's much more nuanced, but I think it provides a whole hell of a lot more options because the truth, Ellie, is if I think you're wrong and you have to change, I only have one option. Mm -hmm. force you to change i can call your parents no no, really we all know how well
0: that's gonna work
1: (laughs) no but 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 really what are my options i can call your parents i can say you know your daughter like you got to speak to her that's one thing i've seen people do that Mm -hmm. you can get the therapist on your side Mm -hmm. right or maybe you can force your 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 partner into therapy Mm -hmm. right or which is really
0: always successful
1: (laughs) <laughs> what well, well, people—people who, who have a very, very, very problematic senses of self—do just go, "It is me." You know, people who are clinically, severely clinically depressed, they'll mm-hmm. say that, "I'm a horrible person. I've always been a horrible." I mean, it's a tragedy. Right. Which right? is right? also
0: but- like we talked about this in the casualty episode, which is also a type of not taking responsibility.
1: Well, it's, it's the flip opposite of what right. the person who says it's, it's not my exactly, but but I'm saying there is scenarios where people are like that mm-hmm. and they'll see, you know uh, I, I've worked with people like this and I'll say, how many therapists have you seen in your life?" And they'll say, oh 17, 18. <laughs> I mean they they've, they've been being brought to therapy ever since they were six. Mm. You, you know like the, 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 the black sheep of the family or the problem show, the, their identity is oh no, I, I yeah, I'm, you know, and they'll say it by the way, right, right they will say it. They will say something like, um, uh, my family had uh, serious problems and I I was the cause of it. So look, um, so that's one way. The, The only other way that I know of that is a comprehensive way of dealing with relationship problems is to move beyond cause and effect and to see these things as reciprocal mm-hmm. and that I'm playing a part and you're playing a part, but it's not my bloody responsibility to tell you what part you're playing. Right. My responsibility is one and only, and this is where Yom Kipper comes back in. My responsibility is to take responsibility for my part in any sort of relationship, dynamic and to try to have uh, uh, and and to do the work to understand my part to play. And if I can do that, I have a shot at changing the dance. And if anybody's interested in understanding what I mean by dance, read any of Harriet Lerner's uh, The Dance Of series.
0: Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, I always love ending on a young people reference. reference. That always makes me super happy. So that's great. Um, Awesome. Okay, I'm so glad we did this song. I feel like this was such an important conversation around apologies and um, the charge on saying sorry, but the importance of taking responsibility and how those can be different things sometimes. So um, awesome. Thank you, Avram. Uh, that's the playlist song for this week. Please remember to subscribe and share. If you want to see more from Avram and myself about these topics, you can check out our other podcasts. If you have kids, pop parenting, um, or just want to hear more about family dynamics, um, that. Podcast covers that as well. There's about two seasons there. Um, and if you want the blog or other information that goes with this podcast, you can check it out at theloveexaminedplaylist.com. If you want to hear songs that are from the show, please go to our Spotify playlist or our Apple Music playlist and you can hear all the songs that we talk about. And if you have a song that you think we should talk about, please get in touch with us. There's uh, links in the liner notes, or you can find us again at theloveexaminedplaylist.com. Um, and let us know your song suggestions, topic suggestions, something you want us to talk about. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks Avram.